right, we're going to get started. Thank you for coming today. As sustainable mobility moves from white papers and blueprints inspiring the ecosystem to pilots in real world scenarios, failure is not only expected, but a necessary outcome to move ahead. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Gretchen Newcomb, and I'm the Director of Partnerships for Mobility Data. It's a global organization that facilitates the standardization of data specifications to enable the planning and payment of seamless multimodal transportation. We govern the development and maintenance of the data specifications used worldwide for transit and shared mobility. It's a collaborative process, and we govern a broad, diverse, and engaged ecosystem of producers and consumers of this data. And it is through our collaboration with the community and building and implementing the standards that we support many of the recipients of the mobility pilots and demonstrations we will be discussing today. Research and innovation is playing an increasingly important role in helping public transit as it adapts to new work and travel patterns while tackling historic inequities, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and accelerating equitable economic growth. This research mission is achieved by developing, demonstrating, evaluating, and deploying transformative technologies and processes to create connected climate-friendly communities. The pandemic has also increase the pressure on transit to reinvent itself and to discover new solutions to old problems while recovering ridership loss. To do so, transit is seeking to integrate multimodal and on-demand solutions that provide greater service flexibility and is finding creative ways to think beyond the bus to address the diversification of movement of people that is rapidly becoming the new norm. In 2016, prior to the pandemic, the Intelligent Transportation Systems Joint Program Office and the Federal Transit Administration partnered to launch the $8 million Mobility on Demand or MOD Sandbox grant program with 11 projects funded. The MOD Sandbox program enabled innovation to enhance public transportation services by allowing agencies to explore partnerships, develop new business models, integrate public transit and MOD strategies, and investigate new enabling technical capabilities through demonstration projects. Now, post pandemic with the Biden influx, um, a Biden administration um, influx of funding to the DOT, this early foundational work has taken on a greater urgency and impact. Just last month, the FTA published its independent evaluation of the sandbox demonstrations, and we are looking forward to hearing more about the lessons learned in this early experience. As you can see, while succeeding in some areas, the pilots also revealed challenges and shortcomings. Since Sandbox, the FTA has been full steam ahead with more innovative projects launched almost annually with new acronyms. There's IMI, AIM, AIM, MEI, or EMI, and MATI. And as the FTA continues to roll out new programs, a few are standing out. Um, to be crucial to advancing some of the administrative goals of addressing climate change and also equity. These critical programs are Mobility Next and the Environmental Sustainability and Resiliency Program. Mobility Next will delve deeper into the issues that affect equity in mobility and enhance travelers' ability to make climate-smart decisions. 
Today, we will discuss how the iterative process is shaping future projects, but also impacting the communities involved in these projects. We will share historical failures and how it informed future successes. We will look at this process, how this process informs decision-making within public and private sector stakeholders, and provide insight into how pilots can manage community expectations and needs. And I want to thank all of my speakers for coming on board um, on stage today and being a little vulnerable, talking about the failures, but also talking about the challenges that they were able to overcome. And before I introduce our speakers on stage today, with a show of hands, how many um, in the audience are currently or have in the past participated in a pilot program, either federal or otherwise? Okay, got a few of them, great. And how many in the audience are considering applying for a federal grant? Great, we'll love to hear your input and questions. We will have a, a section at the end to do uh, that. So to move on, I will um, introduce our speakers. Jameson Otten is currently the CEO of Lane Transit District in Eugene, Oregon. He was previously the CEO at Kansas City Area Transportation Authority, where he oversaw mobility pilots. When he was initially recommended to me for this panel, he was described as one of the most forward-thinking innovation-centered leaders in the industry. So I'm very much excited hearing from you today. Kim Lucas serves as the director for the city of Pittsburgh's Department of Mobility and Infrastructure. She oversees transportation investments and policies that support the physical mobility needed for the people of Pittsburgh to pursue economic mobility and has been known to refer to her city as Pilotsburg. I look forward to hearing her ideas on experimentation through P3 collaboration, using pilots to break through red tape, and how Pittsburgh launched the first e-scooter program in Pennsylvania. And our final panelist, who before we start our discussion will speak more about what's coming next with the FTA, is Guo Wei Tong, and he is the Director of Office of Mobility Innovation at Federal Transit Administration. And in his role, he oversees the FTA mobility research portfolio that includes mobility on demand, transit automation research, and multimodal payment in, um, integration. Here you go. Oops. I think this is you now. Go away. All right. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Um, before I start, I want to do a, a little exercise. I even helped myself to out of this lunch coma, which we had a fantastic barbecue. So um, I want to ask the audience, all of us, uh, who actually traveled to South by through the airport? All right. Keep your arms up. Uh, who actually used Route 20 bus from the airport to downtown? Am I the only one, really? Okay. <laughs> Even the other transit person didn't do it. <laughs> we got some work so, to do. <laughs> um, that, that's great. So uh, my experience is very, uh, Cap Natural did a great job. Uh, it's very uh, typical transit experience, uh, traveling from airport. To, uh, to your destination. And I just had, a, right before our session, I had a conversation with Jameson, and I says, well, being a transit advocate, uh, you did not use uh, the, the transit from the airport to the downtown. And Jameson's response was, I'm not a transit advocate. I'm a mobility advocate. So I think it's very intriguing uh, for a transit agency CEO to say that 
I think it's very important for us, all of us, to keep that in mind. When we talk about transit as a, as a backbone of the mobility, it's not the only solution in the mobility space. Now, I want to I share this. Uh, I think Gretchen has done a, a great job kind of throughout this typical uh, Washington, D.C. war salad, you know, with all this, like, starting my sandbox, you have EMI, IMIM. Uh, this is my attempt to tr hopefully translate this from war salad to something that's more, uh, make more sense. So, for those of you who are not readily familiar with federal, uh, those demonstration programs that uh, my office has, has funded since 2016, MOD Sandbox, each of those bubbles represent a unique demonstration funding opportunity. And I have encountered a lot of the questions to me, say, hey, you, you have this different name. Are they all like the same thing? They just have a different name for it? And I say, eh, for the most part, maybe, but not exactly. So I try to put those bubbles in, trying to make sense and, and share that with you. So when you look at this chart, if you can follow my logic, hopefully, the, the x-axis, think about how many of you have uh, like a college, well, you, well, you, how many, how many of you have a college kids in the family? All right, a few. But hopefully you will kind of uh, relay that with me. I'm going to use that um, as a way to explain this. So on the X is you think about from senior, uh, freshman year to senior year. Right? So in our research portfolio, you want to have a good balance of a freshman class and all the way through a senior class and then they graduate. That's when you have this wide deployment, meaning the technologies are mature enough for commercialization or any particular innovative ideas ready for prime time. On the y-axis, if you can uh, think of that as major, right? So when you have uh, some of some of the some of the programs that we have are very specific, very targeted, such as uh, the bottom that you see automation. That's automation, and then. Like the sandbox uh, Gretchen talked about, it's very wide. At the time, we transit industry actually were pushed hard by all those emerging mobility ideas, right? So if you, you uh, for those of you who will remember, it was, the example would be Uber, Lyft, the TNCs. And a lot of us in the transit industry said, oh my God, we have somebody else show up and, and, and seems kind of look like us and serve similar purpose like we do, but they are not transit. So at that time, transit industry in general feel a sense of identity crisis and says, what are those people? They're kind of like doing what we do. And so it, it, there was a sense of urgency. That's why we push out the sandbox. Sandbox by nature is not so much of an exploratory, it's more of a reactive. Right, so it's something that pushing against us. We got to do something about it. Now, starting from the sandbox moving forward, gradually you will see we are doing a great job moving our class from the sophomore class to the junior class to the senior class. And I'm happy to say that some of the ideas that was kind of like prototype demonstration has been proven to be very uh, promising. One example will be like microtransit, right? First, last mile using microtransit. I will consider that as an example of a senior class about to graduate. And our later demonstration programs actually to reinforce that, 
you will see uh, like EMI uh, and AIM, the yellow uh, bubble. And then after all this doing great, and we realize one thing, as a successful college, we cannot afford to have a vacuum in our freshman class. And your, seniors class, your senior class just as good as your freshman class. So that leads to the Mobility Next program that Gretchen referenced uh, earlier, Mobility Next. So what we're gonna do with Mobility Next that fill the vacuum still with the open-minded, like we want to embrace all the innovative ideas, technologies, capabilities, partnerships, and we want to do all that, or at least think about that. How would that help all of us to move mobility forward? If you okay. can. Oh. That's the only other one you gave me. Oh, I gave you this? This is <laughs> great. All right, so, uh, so this, uh, you know what, that's okay. I'm going to just uh, describe to you what, so this slide was meant to be a mobility net. And this is really a, a, a collage of all the good ideas in a very non-legible form. So what it is, is so we launched the Mobility Next program. One thing I think is very important for all of us to keep in mind, and I assume that the, the very fact that we all sitting in the same room is we all believe in that public transportation is a backbone in our community. With that in mind, what I also want to advocate to, for all of us to keep in mind that we cannot just think among ourselves. Public transportation, after all, in this country, we have about 2% of a most share. If we continue to think ourselves, talking to among ourselves, we are talking to 2% of the uh, 2% of the population that who already using public transportation. I want to give you an analogy and then I will turn the mic back to Gretchen. Think about if our goal is to promote healthy diet for people among population. Are we going to, we cannot just keep growing healthy food without concern, without thinking about how do we bring the healthy food to people and incentivize people to consume healthy food. In order to do that, what we need to do is we have to have a mechanism to allow people who are currently eating junk food to join the platform to begin with. You cannot just talk to people who are already eating healthy, right? So the same thing here, Mobility Next, a very fundamental belief is Mobility Next has to be holistic, including people using public transportation today, not using public transportation today, driving SOV every day, everybody is in. We start from there. And then we have to, all, we have to offer some junk food to the table because people crave for junk food. Right? So they not, no one gonna change overnight. If I, if I eat McDonald's every day, I'm not gonna just all of a sudden eat healthy. So you have to bring me in, have this, all the selections, and then gradually incentivize me to eat healthy. So that's the fundamental belief. That's the, the building block of Mobility Next, and, and more to come. I will turn that back to you. Thanks, Guo Wei. We really appreciate that. That gives you a little context of 
where we've been, how we got to the point we are now, and where we're, we're going. Um, the other two people we have on stage today, um, very appropriately and be very helpful, are representatives from transit agency and also a city who have been recipients and participants in pilot projects. So we're going to start a discussion today by sharing with the audience an experience you've had with a pilot project in your community, and also tell us what you believe a pilot is. What exactly is a pilot? How is it different or is it interchangeable with a demonstration pilot? And what types of po projects are best suited for a pilot project? And Kim, I'm going to have you start us off and also elaborate on your comment about what it, when it's not a good idea to call someone a pilot. So, Sure, thank you. So I think in its purest form, a pilot is supposed to be an experiment. It's supposed to be something that you can learn from. And you can learn from, you know, most things if you're trying hard enough. But I think the first thing that comes to mind when I think of the word pilot is that we're trying something that's new because we want to see if it will work before committing the resources or whatever else to it, you know, full-blown. Um, I think in the, our industry, though, and especially when you're at a city level, a pilot takes on a different life. You know, sometimes it's that true experimentation and sometimes it's a Trojan horse term. When you know you want to try something in a new way, but you know that the response that you might get because you're trying something new might not be super supportive. So, But you want and you feel that if you put it out there and it is successful and it does what you think it's going to do, that then you're going to be able to build on that support. So things that you probably shouldn't call a pilot are things that you absolutely cannot reverse because you won't be able to, you know, make good on your word. You know, in the small chance that you actually have to stop it and turn back time, you probably shouldn't have called it a pilot if you've, you know, burned the house down. Um, but I think in most cases, you can use that term and that concept to support the thing that you want to see. And so in Pittsburgh, I think the most prominent pilot, and by the way, before I do this, can you please raise your hand if you're from the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? Okay, good. Nobody here works for the Pennsylvania Department of Transportation, <laughs> state legislature, no, okay, so I can speak freely. Um, so I was in the District of Columbia for a number of years before I came up to the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And one of the first things I learned when I came up to Pennsylvania was that electric scooters of the type that you see all over Austin today were not legal in the entire Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And this was in 2019, which I was shocked. I didn't think they were illegal anywhere. Um, so the only place that they are legal in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania is as part of the two-year pilot program in Pittsburgh, PA. It's part of our MOVE PGH program, which is not only a pilot to show that scooters can provide real mobility trips, but it's also a demonstration of mobility as a service. Um, I can't talk about this without Karina Ricks, former director of the City of Pittsburgh's Department of Mobility and Infrastructure, getting a shout out because I'm talking about her baby, even if she's ducking. So thank you, Karina, for pushing the envelope for the whole Commonwealth. Um, but we launched this program just about two years ago, and it was to not only show that when a city is intentional and says, hey, industry, we want you to come together with a unified solution that brings together car share, bike share, scooter share, at the time, carpooling and uh, moped share into one integrated app so that it's easy for all of our residents to access these services. And we're going to launch a brand new form factor on the streets of Pennsylvania. Um, better believe that was a pilot. And it was something that's even considered a pilot at the state level. And that means, you know, that was just about two years ago. And we're coming up in July on its two-year expiration date. 
So I don't know if you want me to talk about the challenges now or if you want me to hold on to those, but I can talk a little bit what it feels like being at the cliff of that two years and knowing that you know, the legalization of this form factor kind of rides on the work that you're doing. Yeah, that's good. We're going to get to that exact issue later. But Jameson, can you um, add to this conversation in question? Yeah, absolutely. And and let me let me uh, clarify. For my buddy, put me on Front Street. Yeah. I don't ride the bus when I go to a, a city I'm not familiar with until I'm there. So typically, I'll get in the cab or a TNC, have a conversation with a, with the driver, and then get where I'm going. And then when I go back to the airport today, I'll take the number twenty there. I think for transportation, public transportation, uh, it's a it's a high uh, barrier of entry for people to ride it. Uh, Gloria mentioned two percent. Well, there's a reason. You know, sometimes we name our routes in ways with with a number doesn't give an indication on where we go. Uh, you don't know what to do when you get to that fare box. Do I stick the paper in? Do I swipe it? Do I have a, a phone? There are all these people going to be looking at me and saying, "Hey, you're holding the bus up." So there's a high barrier. But once you learn how to use it. You know, you've, you've learned something and you use it all the time. So I'm going to use it on the way back to the airport because when I get off a plane, I like to get to the hotel, put my stuff down, get a shower. So there you have it. There's my personal uh, travel habits that you can take with you. Um, in terms of pilots, um, I've been involved in, in several uh, point of reference from uh, Kansas City. So back in 2016, um, we were looking at how do we provide another level of service in a in an area that has uh, um, quite a bit of highway miles per capita and densities, you know, this is a familiar story, go down as you get away from the core. And the city had annexed uh, quite a bit of farmland, so was, the densities dropped even more. So how do you, how do you uh, create an environment for public transportation or mobility, really, uh, when, when that exists? Uh, when, you're, when, your main form, when your main tool is a 30 or 40 foot bus? You get questions, right? You get questions on, you know, why are there two heads on the bus going down the street? Why are there no heads on the bus going down the street? Is there a better way to do it? Well, in 2016, we started to take a look at um, what that better way might be. Uh, we looked at a microtransit project and um, wanted to see how we could uh, connect people to the system in ways that uh, they were used to or accustomed to, which had a lower uh, barrier of hurdle. You know, we all have these smartphones or laptops or access to phones. So uh, we wanted to test how that would work. And there were some key lessons that came out of that, and I may be getting in front of the program, uh, but, I, but I want to put that on the table now because I think it's important to, uh, to be able to understand failings and apply them, and we'll talk about the application in a bit. But one of the, uh, one of the things that we learned was when we partnered, it was the first public-private partnership of its, of its kind in the, in the nation, and one of the things we learned was definitions. You know, usually you, you read a statute or, or, or a contract, and the, the first pages are all the definitions, right? Uh, we didn't pay good attention to the definitions, particularly the definition of, of uh, marketing. So for the private sector, uh, our, our private partner, their form of marketing was, you know, let's get on the front page of the New York Times, let's look at um, investors, let's show that we have a project on the, on the ground floor which is not a bad thing. That's the nature of the business when you're a startup. For our transit system, it was about how do we impact uh, lives? How do we grab ridership? How do we show what the impacts are of this service? So I think we had those two definitions were, were a little bit off. 
so when we launched the service, there was a lot of national press, um, a lot of um, excitement around it, but the people on the ground didn't know who it was for. They thought it was cool, they thought it was a cool concept, but they didn't quite know what it was. So the differences in the level of the marketing um, was a little different. The other, the other lesson that we learned from that was the early adopter for that type of, of service uh, didn't really match the profile of our typical rider, of our typical rider. So, you know, if from the private side, I'm going to go where my early adopters are because I'm going to show proof of concept. Uh, from the public sector side, we want to make sure that there's an equity lens. So we worked very closely with the Office of Civil Rights um, to make sure that where we're offering this service, uh, there is access by those who may not have had the profile of early adopters. That's important because a lot of times public systems will always look to what can we learn from the private sector. Well, this was an opportunity for us to inform the private sector that this is a real thing. And if you're going to partner with other uh, public systems, then that has to be a key consideration. We took those two uh, learnings and applied them to another program I'll talk about in a little bit. But wanted to put that on the table. The, the other thing I'll, I'll say about the 2% the of uh, transit users, 2% um, may use it, but they depend. 2% may use it, but those that don't use it still depend on those 2%. So when we talk about ridership numbers, uh, they're important to report, right? They're, they're, it's, a, it's a part of an ROI, but it's not the only ROI. You know, what do those ridership numbers really represent? That's the question, right? So in Little Lane uh, Transit District, we do about 30,000 trips a day. When I left Kansas City um, at the height before pandemic, it was about 60,000 trips a day. And when you talk to your funders about that, you know, sometimes their, their eyes glaze over. If you talk to an elected official, sometimes their eyes glaze over. 12 million trips a year, 15 million trips a year, it's a big number. Okay, I get it. But when you start talking about this service enabled someone to get to a health care appointment or to an apprenticeship program or to a job or to child care or there's affordable housing that's baked into the, to the capital project that supports it all, then it starts to make sense. So uh, if, there's, if there's one thing you take away from this with pilot programs and anything else, it's the outcomes that matter, not necessarily the numbers, the outcomes. The numbers do matter, but what those numbers represent matter more. That's excellent segue. Thank you, Jameson. Because go away, I wanted to ask you if you could share from the DOT's perspective how results from the projects you have overseen either inform policy or are put into practice. You and I have had conversations about your approach to prioritize projects that have the potential for scalability or repeatability beyond the initial pilot. Could you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, so from the FTA standpoint, we see pilot as an instrument that help us to maximize it. So the two things about pilot that we like to get out of pilot, uh, two things about, two things we like to get out of pilot. One is to maximize learning. Uh, this is one difference that perhaps from a federal standpoint and uh, local cities and transit agencies, we want to invest in those pilot and hopefully extract all the lessons, as much lessons we can learn from this pilot and take that lesson to transfer that knowledge to all the other transit agencies and communities across the country so we can continue to make progress. 
And, and so maximize learning is a huge objective. And the other objective that we have, uh, to your point, Gretchen, is to inform policy. And I, I do want to say, like, when, when we say change, um, our definition of FTS definition of a change perhaps is different from what you have in mind about change. The change that we're talking about probably like a, like a glacier speed. Uh, so everything is like very subtle, very incremental. Nothing, no one rocking the boat. But we do see those pilot as a very effective instrument to help to inform that poli uh, policy dialogue, which is important to have. As example, uh, very recently for those of uh, us in the transit, um, maybe you're like in the transit business, you realize that FTS starts uh, modernize our national tr transit database reporting, start taking in those TNC trips. And those, the result of that is really being informed by an earlier pilot starting from Sandbox. We say, well, this is what uh, a partnership with TNC can lead into a better mobility outcome for people in our communities. And this is what to do, this is what not to do. So when we say maximize learning, we're talking about knowledge that's good, bad, ugly, and everything. We want to maximize that and transfer that knowledge. So, so uh, just to leave that, so what, what do we build on our prior investment in pilot? And, and a simple way to put it, I would say, if we select you as a pilot this time, the next time, if you propose the same project, I will never ever choose you again. Because if I do, I'm not making progress, right? So uh, fortunately, we were able to do that. So every round that like earlier you heard from the sandbox on, we were able to, every little, every program we were able to build upon the accomplishment from the prior program, continue to move that knowledge uh, journey. So that's important. So the way that we translate that into informing next projects, we will never go back to fund the same project that we actually funded last time. Okay, thank you. Um, many of the project partners in the MOD program said that the Sandbox program was instrumental in testing new service models, and that, in fact, the demonstrations would not have been possible without the FTA funding. I'm interested in looking at that. Um, and Jameson, you also mentioned that failing forward, forward matters and should be embraced. So I want you to describe how that iterative process plays a role in the demonstration of pilots and how it impacts learning in communities, particularly in, as a transit agency from that perspective when you are dealing with failing forward. Sure, and thank you for that. And you know, the, the Sandbox grants were, grant was instrumental. It, it signaled a couple things. It signaled that um, public transportation could start thinking differently. It also signaled that the FTA um, was gonna start thinking differently as well as the environment changes. And you know it's still relevant today. You know when you look at downtowns, a really interesting article uh, the other day about downtowns and how remote work is impacting downtowns and, and impacting commute patterns. And we're going to start looking at that. Um, it's important for transit systems to understand what their communities need them to be. Okay, not what not what Jameson wants LTD to be, um, but what our communities need us to be. And it's important for us to really take a look at how, how does that impact the customer experience? How does that econo uh, impact the economics? Uh, how does that impact the, um, the sustainability 
of, of projects that we put in place. And it's important to be able to, not all of those are going to work. You know, if, if you think about baseball, are there any baseball fans in here? I'm slightly a baseball fan. All right, but if baseball works, the analogy works. You know, you look at someone that goes up to bat, and if they strike out seven times out of ten over their career, they're, 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 they're probably going to get in the Hall of Fame. Right? Think about that. Seven times. Six times, definitely. Seven times, they might get in the Hall of Fame. But what do they learn? What does that baseball player or softball player uh, learn um, during the course of a game? How do they get that average back up? Well, they watch. You know, they may go up in the first inning and strike out, and they're watching the tendencies of the pitcher. They're collecting that information from the other batters, and they're looking at the tendencies of the pitcher, and they're applying that to the next step bat. That's what transit systems have to do. We have to take a look at, you know, what are the goals that we're trying to solve for? What are the measurables? How did we do? Do a frank assessment. Look at yourself in the mirror and really call what you see and then apply that to the next project moving forward. That's, that's the only way that you can do it because you know, most decisions that we make are two-way decisions anyway. You know, if you decide that you're going to have a leg amputated um, for some reason, it, it, you better think long and hard about that. It's not going to grow back. But if you decide that you want to have a turkey sandwich for lunch and you don't like it, no problem. You can order something different tomorrow. So things don't come out of the chute um, perfect anyway. So it's an iterative process um, throughout all of it. The example that I started to give about the uh, microtransit project and, and what we learned from that, how we failed forward from that is um, part of the early adopter group that um, was not taken into consideration were those that had uh, physical disabilities. Uh, the vehicles that were used were not lift enabled. We had to do a workaround on that. And then the service area didn't match and the, and the fare didn't quite match. So we took the learnings from that project that lasted a little over a year, and we started a different on-demand project that had um, persons with disabilities as the core of what we were designing for. It was people centered on that population. Uh, that service is still running today. That was 2018. It, it came out of pilot. It's still running today. The importance of that service is, is that it, it functions like a uh, TNC. So. Have any of you ever used paratransit service or ADA paratransit service? Ever heard of it? Okay, so ADA paratransit service is the service that uh, folks use who have difficulty riding the bus. Um, it's a door-to-door -door service. It's a, the smaller vehicle comes, it, it'll arrive, it'll give you typically a half-hour window and wait five minutes. And if you're in a meeting like this and you're in your half-hour window, you're looking out the window to see if the van's there because then it'll leave you. Um, you have to plan your day, the day at least the day before, to understand where you're going to go, so you can't be spontaneous uh, using that service. Um, and it's it, most transit systems don't talk about it that much because it's a it's a it's a sea level service. We have to do it, so we try to do it as cheaply as possible. The service that we implemented was able to keep that service as an option for people who wanted to use that. At the same time, we, uh, the fare on the bus was, uh, went down to zero for folks who qualified for that service. But then this other microtransit service was introduced that was same-day service, just like you or I would use a, a TNC, that all the vehicles were lift-enabled. Um, that was a, We were able to um, apply or supply a, a higher level of service to folks who really needed it. So those learnings came out of that failed microtransit project and some other projects as well. 
And that's, that's the best example that I have of, of failing forward in that context. Thank you. And Kim, can you weigh in on this from the city's perspective? On failure? On failure and the need for, you remember? Yeah. <laughs> um, so I think in a true pilot, there is no such thing as failure. Because if the goal of a pilot is to really learn, you're going to learn something. You're going to learn maybe that the thing that you were trying out didn't have the desired outcome that you had thought it was going to have. But that doesn't totally mean it failed. Um, we, with the Mobility as a Service program that I mentioned that is expiring in July and that we're actively working on hopefully convincing the state to enable e-scooters to exist beyond that time, there have been some challenges that have come out of it. You know, on the surface, and I actually think even below the surface, it's been a success. We have seen almost a million trips on about a thousand scooters in our city. We have a very hilly city. And those trips were taken not just in the sort of university to downtown corridor, but they've been seen citywide. I have not received substantial reports of safety concerns and issues. Um, and based on survey data, about 35% of those trips would have been taken by a car or someone in a car instead of a scooter. And we all know that cars cause congestion, environmental quality issues, and in the worst case scenario, they literally kill people. And so anytime I can get someone to not take their car and to instead try a different mode, it is a huge success. However, right now, because this pilot was so pioneering and there were lots of creative solutions that were used in order to stand it up, we're getting some questions. You know, now that we have to come up with the final report, there's some questions about some of the relationships we had. You know, we put out an RFP to get the Pittsburgh Mobility Collective to come together. That's that group of those service providers. But we never ended up issuing an actual contract because we learned while working with them and waiting for scooters to become street legal that we didn't actually think we needed a contract. We just needed to give them a permit to operate. But now that's being called into question. You know, because a few years ago we said we were going to have a contract and some other things like that. So in a way, that's a failure, but ultimately I think that we're learning and these are going to inform hopefully a longer-term program and hopefully we'll have the opportunity to course correct on some of those questions. Okay, thank you. We're talking a lot about failure. Let's talk a little bit about success. Guo Wei, can you perhaps share how the DOT measures success and how the iterative process plays a role in that? Uh, sure, thank you. Uh, so, like I said earlier, the way that we see pilot from an FTA standpoint is to maximize learning and inform policy. Can you hold your mic closer? Oh, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, the way that we define success before we talk about how do you measure it is to uh, maximize learning uh, and to inform policy dialogues, uh, both within the federal level and with our federal partners, uh, as well as with uh, state and local stakeholders. And in that regard, I would say that we, were, we have been very successful and very fortunate. Uh, and um, the way that we, we do the, the maximize learning, like I, I mentioned earlier, is to make sure that every knowledge that we learn, and here is a success to us, I really echo what Kim was saying, is really there's no bad pilot. Uh, in that regard, is that what we learn. Because sometimes if you, uh, the whole idea about pilot is we have some unproven ideas that we think it will work, but we're not sure, right? So we do the pilot, even if it turned out to be a failure, uh, and, and Jameson had that uh, experience with microtransit in Kansas City, 
we learn a lot from that, so we don't make the same mistake again. And we also move forward the dialogue. So we kind of like look at the bad idea that we thought was good, we, we turn out to be bad, and we move on. So that in itself is a success. So that's how, you know, again, from the federal government perspective, we see that uh, to pollinate that, that knowledge transfer and graduate, you know, to go back to my earlier diagram, how we graduate uh, the senior class and to be a wide deployment. Uh, and then, quite frankly, we have college students that drop out, and that's the way it works. So, uh, yeah, that's how we, how we, how we define okay, Gretchen, it. Gretchen, can I add one thing? Sorry, this is the most tightly moderated panel I've ever been on. You've kept me in control. Good job. And I'm caffeinated and everything. But I also wanted to point out, thinking about pilots, thinking about this concept of failure, is sometimes the things that you're trying out really need a substantial amount of time or a critical mass of that thing in order for them to work well. So, for example, if you were trying out electric vehicle charging stations and you have, like, five of them in your city, maybe you're not going to see a big impact on the number of electric vehicles that are adopted in your city. Suppose you had 100 stations, but you only had them out there for a year. Again, you might not see a big increase in the adoption of electric vehicles. Is it because people don't want to go in that direction? Maybe. Or maybe it's because they just haven't had enough time to understand the program and to take the actions to get towards it. So when we think about our pilots, you know, our scooter pilot and our mobility as a service pilot is two years. That gives us more runway. But for so many things, especially if there's that one year, which a lot of people like to try things for just 12 months because it sounds like sexy and easy, be careful. Be careful about what you're considering a failure or if you think your findings have not been found because it might just be because of that time constraint. Thank you. And um, Jameson, I'd actually like to have you weigh in on this uh, concept of definition of success also and the metrics in success. Again, Karina and I were on stage last year and we um, had a conversation about this and the need to go beyond ridership and to start to take into account in those metrics some of the opaque ROIs. And Jameson, you had this similar conversation. So I wanted to get from the agency's perspective how you measure success beyond ridership. Well, thank you for that. You know, we're we're a part of the community. We don't transit systems don't don't exist in a vacuum. And I think that one of the things that that we do particularly well in in Eugene, Oregon, is uh, we understand what are the top challenges facing our communities. We we have a very good understanding of that. Uh, we are um, I think number three in terms of homelessness per capita. Uh, we have a um, environment where a lot of um, different drugs have been decriminalized. We have a, a mental health uh, challenges, and then we also have um, housing issues. One of the most expensive places uh, to live, and 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 a overall housing shortage as well. So, how do we understanding those and understanding the communities and what the communities are trying to solve for? How do we how do we connect with with those types of of activities. Uh, we're going through a process right now where we're identifying what those metrics are and what those metrics can be and have a very uh, public-facing uh, dashboard that we're using to measure those. You, you can go on our website, you can get our ridership numbers and, and our budget information and all that stuff. It, that's all great stuff. Uh, however, um, what? how are we impacting um, environment, you know, the Pacific Northwest environmental is 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 always top of mind. So, how are we deploying um, uh, electric vehicles? What's our strategy for zero emissions? I was just in the. Uh, we had a board meeting last night. We just approved seven um, uh, 
diesel buses. And people start scratching their heads. What are you doing with diesel buses? Well, the fact of the matter is we can't deploy 100% electric right now. The, the technology is not all the way there for our route structure. And um, we don't have the, the infrastructure to do it in a responsible way. So we have to phase it in in a responsible way. So what does that mean? Well, we use R99 diesel, which is renewable. 99% of it's renewable. You know, if I, if I took the diesel word off of it, no one would even um, blink an eye. So I think it's important for us to understand and communicate uh, how we're a part of, of what, the, uh, what the community is striving for. Um, even if we use a R99 diesel bus, we're still taking cars off the road. So the net impacts to our environment are there, but we're doing it in a way that's feasible, that, that's structured. I think it's also important to um, understand that we're not always going to be the keeper of the metrics, right? We don't, I, don't, I don't know. Um, I'm not a healthcare professional. I'm not a, um, a, an educator. But our educators understand uh, the value of being able to make sure that there's sustainable transportation that get their kids back and forth. Our economic development folks understand that you know part of the stool uh, for a for a single parent to to main, not find a job but maintain a job is public transportation, is housing, is childcare. So how do we interact with all of those things? You know, having our, our capital plans include uh, low low income housing or middle income housing or whatever it may be for for our communities and and report on those things. So. Uh, that's the approach that, that we've taken in, in Eugene, and we continue to walk down that path. Okay. Thank you. Um, two, I wanted to point out right now two of the takeaways that have really stood out to me from the report, and I'm also hearing it echoed quite a bit in these, con these um, conversations at South by Southwest. One is around outcomes and community engagement. Um, a lot of the um, early Sandbox um, partners said that they did not account for the amount of time and energy and effort it would take to engage with the community, market with the community, and not just engage for the purpose of um, understanding outcomes, but to educate them what's going into their community, how, it could how they can leverage it, how to engage with this new mode of mobility often. Um, so I wanted to um, talk about that first. The second one is going to be about the challenge around P3 partnerships, and we'll get to that. But right now, staying with community, Kim and Jameson, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing how you gather feedback from community during this process, and what steps do you take to ensure that the community's needs and concerns are being addressed? Kim, would you like to take that? Sure. Um, I think from the city standpoint, one of the biggest challenges that I've had working in any um, municipality is making sure that you're getting feedback that is representative of a greater community. You know, just like Yelp, just like when people are upset with their restaurants, generally the really pissed off people are going to talk to you and the people who are super happy are going to talk to you. But even worse in transportation, the people who are content tend to stay quiet because they don't know that some of the things that they're happy about are being reviewed and considered temporary. And so making sure that people do know that they need to engage is one of our biggest challenges. Um, so with our program, we've had a lot of going out to community meetings and making sure people can talk about, especially the mobility hubs, which are the physical stations where we have a co-location of transportation services, like a scooter docking station next to a bike share station or next to a light rail station. 
Um, we, of course, are able to reach our captive audiences that are using those services through surveys, but that's, again, that's the captive audience of people who are using it, so the people who like the restaurant and keep coming back. Um, we have the standard boring public process coming up. There's going to be a public hearing next month where members of the public can come in and give their testimony. And I'm really, really hoping that we're going to be able to get a lot of people who normally wouldn't come out of the woodwork to come talk about how they've been one of those million trips and how it got them where they needed to go to a critical service. But it is, it's absolutely a challenge. It's absolutely a challenge. And so what we're constantly doing is trying to get feedback and interpret it, you know, number of 311 calls, you know, number of people that have reached out to us directly, number of people who are using the service, and we try to extrapolate from those things, and we can't quite crack the nut on how you get a temperature check on everybody. That, that's great. We were actually, I was in a um, panel yesterday about AV testing, and they were talking about incentivizing them to go into transit deserts, which is great. However, AVs are part of an overall trans, uh, transportation ecosystem. They can't operate on themselves. So you go into a desert, you create access to jobs and education, and then the pilot's over. There's no new backbone of transit into that. So how that is a negative in, impact of that community who might have embraced it. So I thought that was something that needs to be thought of as well. Um, Jameson, do you have anything you'd like to add from the agency point of view? Yeah, I think everything Kim said is, is spot on and applies, applies in our world. Um, you know, I think that the thing that makes it a little more challenging today is you know, coming out of coming out of the pandemic, um, people have different. You know, there's different worldviews. There's different views on what's going on, and priorities have changed. And things that were seemingly important before are not as important now. And things that weren't as important before we're spending time on now. Uh, I think it's a challenge for us to really tap into to what what folks want in a way that. Uh, isn't you know me or, or a handful of planners coming to a group like this and saying here's what we're going to do and here here's why it's best for you? I think there's a um, a, men a mentality or a weariness of uh, whether good or bad um, being told what's what's good for me right now. I think the public has has tapped out on that just a little bit. We're we're trying to figure out right now what is the best way to to communicate in 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 a you know, in an ongoing way, to the same ways that Kim was Kim was describing. Um, we recently had a, a city councilor recalled, uh, partly due to a project um, that was related to transportation and beyond, um, and part of it was because there was no communication. Well, we went back, and there was a ton of communication. There was a whole outreach strategy. It was all documented. There were mailers. There was door knocks. There was the whole nine yards. The issue was it happened back in 2018. Right, people, players switched out. People moved in, didn't know about it. The pandemic happened, and then you know, poof, it, it blows up. That you know, you're you're um, changing our world without our input. So I think it's important that we we answer that question. That we really identify what are the most uh, efficient ways and effective ways to be able to not only gather that public input, but to turn it into decision making and to report back on how it was used and the results there. So it's an ongoing challenge. Okay, thank you. Um, Goey, this is a question for you. I know that most, if not all, of these grants you award come with a research requirement. What role does analysis play in this process, and how does it help you improve the project's outcomes? Um, for FTA research project, we do have uh, 
uh, some provision within the, the research budget that give uh, greater flexibility. Uh, as example, that when we send out this notice funding opportunity, when you apply, uh, and then you, we, in many cases, we actually require you to come with a partner, both either public or private. If we select your application for pilot demonstration, you do not need to compete. Uh, for this. So the idea there is to uh, expedite the learning process. And I keep hitting, say, for us, it's all about learning, right? Well, how, what can we learn the most and the fastest? Uh, so this is one requirement that has come with a research budget. It doesn't exist any other sections within FTA. Another you mentioned about the data analysis is every pilot demonstration uh, will require uh, to conduct independent evaluation. When we say independent, meaning you don't do your own evaluation. We will come in with an independent evaluator to evaluate this project. So just by agreeing, applying, being selected, receive funding from FTA to do a pilot, you are agreeing to uh, open, uh, to provide the data, all the data necessary to uh, to be evaluated independently, and then the whole point is to learn. Uh, like I said earlier, good, bad, ugly, everything uh, that can benefit a much wider transit community or, or community uh, to people uh, to benefit people. So that's what FTA okay. has. We're going to wrap it up with our final question. For members of the audience who may be applying for funding for a pilot or currently executing, what advice would you give them? Jameson, would you like to start with that? Sure. Um, uh, applying for a pilot, one, I would, I would really know what I'm, what I'm trying to solve for because, you know, even if we don't hit that, hit that target, we have to know which way we're going directionally so that we can learn from whatever comes out of it, right? So I think um, starting with that, and, and to, to Kim's point, um, really um, taking the time on the educational piece is important. Calculating the educational piece and not necessarily having to uh, have a race to the finish line. Kim? Uh, make sure the thing you want to do is legal. Um, and because, you know, I think the RFP to get Move PGH, including scooters, went out in like 2019, and scooters did not become street legal until 2020. And so that was a lot of good runway to kind of figure out the nuts and bolts, but that also meant kind of, you know, loss of momentum on some of the ideas and some lost time. And also, you know, I guess this would fall under education, but make sure people somewhat support, at least your political leadership, know that you're pursuing this. Sometimes they have to actually sign the application, so they will know, but make sure they kind of understand what the goal is and that you've linked it to what their goals are, whatever they may be, so that they can support you when it goes out, especially if it's something that's going to be new and spicy and maybe raise a couple eyebrows. Thank you. And before we open up to questions, Goe, do you have anything to add to that advice? Not really advice, but I do want to share one thing. Uh, the other day that I had uh, Chinese food from a restaurant and I opened up a fortune cookie, something that I do want to share with that, that was really the first time I got that. It says, progress is made only by people who dare to be different. Awesome. So if there's any questions, come on up to the mic. I'm happy to, I'm happy to take this. So I mentioned I used to be in Washington, D.C., and what I did in Washington, D.C. is I ran the bike share program. So I'm very familiar with micromobility. I'm familiar with especially getting bikes into the hands of people for short trips. 
were there. I was there when we um, launched e-bikes. Um, so making it easy for people to access. You know, I didn't ride the bus down because I don't want to deal with figuring out how to find a dollar twenty-five to get on it. Um, if it was totally free and ubiquitous, and there's a big sign that said this will take you downtown and it's free and it's every fifteen minutes, that in your face is good stuff. Um, Co-location, physical co-location. So that's what our mobility hubs are in Pittsburgh. Physically putting the bike share station near the light rail station. Physically putting it near the bus stop. Um, for a while, the bike share service also had 15 minutes of free transfer time if you got off the bus and you were getting onto the bike share bike. And so having all those things that incentivize people to try it, having really good wayfinding and route planning so that people know how to get to the Amtrak station, they know where to leave the bike, they know how to get downtown, um, is all really important. From a form factor standpoint, I need to get my kid on that. Yeah. I have a two-year-old, got another one on the way. Like, I need to be able to move my children. And that is the thing that we have been screaming for as an industry, and I still am not seeing it. And that is so challenging because you talk about 2% on transit, it might be even less on um, bikes, especially shared bikes, and there's so much opportunity in unmet demand if you just think about the child use case as well. Yeah, well, I wanted to add to that, actually, because I had an experience where I lived in Portland last year and just had an e-bike. So I learned a few things. First of all, when I traveled from the gorge to Portland, I had to be able to put my bike on the front by myself. Now, I'm five foot three, and you're talking about an e-bike with a pack on it. And the, late, the guy said, I'll help you this time, but you have to be able to get up there. This rack starts at my ribs, so I have to get it up. And then when I'm in the train in Portland, I'm supposed to hang it on a hook. And I'm five foot three, and this thing is heavy. So I think that some gender and diversity of the people who are going to be using these. And I think it's important because I think any micromobility needs to be integrated into a public transit system. So that would be my... And, <laughs> and, and I shudder to use the word transit sometimes. Um, I, really, I really believe that transit systems are, are going to go away. They're, they're chasing a ridership that was diminishing even before the pandemic. I think your question is spot on. Uh, mobility systems will thrive. And I think that um, systems need to be planned with micro-mobility as a part of them. You know, the, the, the basic level of mobility is a, is a good sidewalk, right? So, uh, you know, as a, as, a, as a mobility person, you know, saying that we're not going to plan for um, uh, bikes or scooters is, is kind of silly. It's like saying I'm not going to plan for a sidewalk. Unfortunately, we're done, but feel free to come up and ask a question. Um, but thank you very much for joining us today, and we'll be around if you have any other questions. Thank you. Thank you.